We'll now turn to God's word, and Pastor Bill will continue to preach out of Daniel. And this morning, our passage comes from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, verses 17 through 31. I invite you to open your Bibles as well and follow along as Pastor Bill will be referring uh, to various parts of it. The sermon's entitled, God Judges the World's Arrogance. And I'll be reading from the ESV. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels, vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Now when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we're picking back up our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Daniel today. It's a series, just to remind us, that's helping us answer the question, how do we as people of faith live among people who don't necessarily share our faith, who may even be antagonistic to our faith? And you remember that as the book of Daniel addresses that question, it's intentionally trying to shape, to reshape our worldview. It's trying to give us a way of understanding the larger world, the kingdoms of this world that want nothing to do with God. It's trying to help us understand how God's kingdom interacts with that world, and it's trying to help us understand what our place is in that interaction. Trying to help us understand that we are called to live within this world without compromising our faith. And that while we are here, we're to serve this world. That we seek to understand it, we love the people in it, we work to make it a better place as we bring God's perspective into it. In other words, you live here in a very dark world, but you don't fear the power of this world. You're not afraid that it's going to swallow up God's people, and you don't work to blend in because you're dazzled by what this larger world has to offer. Instead, you live here with purpose. You take seriously that since God rules over all of human history, he has put you here for a reason. And he intends to use you in the lives of the people around you so that they have the chance to see and hear a little bit of what he's like as they interact with you. That's why he's left you here. That's why the church is here. That's the mission of the church. Now, sometimes it's hard to believe that us being here is actually going to make a difference especially when you compare the church with the larger world. We're not powerful. We're not as dazzling. We don't compel the same kind of respect. So how can we have confidence that then that we can actually make an impact on our world, that we're not just going to get run over or or mocked or, or even ignored? How can we know we're not wasting our time? It's by learning to see that God is not hands off with this world that he involves himself to direct, to redirect where human history is going so that it produces the outcome that he wants. And we saw some of that in chapter four. That was where we left the series off right before Easter. We saw that God had broken into King Nebuchadnezzar's life, into the life of the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And God did that to humble him, to teach him that as powerful as he is, that there is one who is even greater, one that has given Nebuchadnezzar everything that he had. Today in chapter 5, we're going to see God continuing to insert himself into history. Chapters 4 and chapter 5 are kind of a pair. It's God intervening in the life of a different king, Belshazzar, a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. But this time the outcome is different. Nebuchadnezzar helps us see that God does intervene in people's lives, even very powerful people's lives, in order to transform them. Belshazzar helps us see that if people refuse his invitation, if they refuse his grace, then God does intervene, but he does so to judge them. Combination of these two chapters then gives us hope as God's people, hope that there is no person or society that is outside of God's control, and therefore 
we have confidence this world's going to end up exactly the way that God planned for it to end up. That we are going to be his people, absolutely thrilled to be with him in a restored world. And so we have hope, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That what we do for him matters because he makes sure that it matters, whether we see immediate results or not. That's one of the purposes for why God gives you chapter 5. It's to give you hope in this world that what you do in serving God is not pointless. It's not a waste of time. There's another purpose, however, to this chapter, and we're going to spend the majority of our time there today. And the purpose there is to, so that you and I learn to hate a life that rejects God, regardless of how appealing it looks on the outside. It's, again, something that we really need in this world because it is so easy to see the bait, the shiny, attractive stuff of a life that turns away from God, but not see the hook that is there inside the bait. And so we look out the window and we see what our neighbors have. We see how they live. And if we just stop there at that surface level, it's very appealing. It's appealing to want what they want, to have what they have, to trust what they trust, and to pursue the lifestyle that they do. And that's, since it's very appealing, we need to see the hook, to see what happens when you give yourself to a life that has nothing to do with God. And scripture does that. It shows you the hook. It peels back the surface attractiveness of a godless life and it shows you the ugliness and it shows you the rot that comes with it and it does that so you go, oh, if that's what ungodliness produces, then I don't want anything to do with that. It's a big part of what chapter five is doing. Now let's think for a moment about what's wrong with Belshazzar. What is it that fuels his pride? What keeps it going? Why does he refuse to be transformed by God even though he saw everything that God did to humble Nebuchadnezzar? It's because, verse 23, he refuses to honor God, the God who holds his breath and his life in his hand. Now, on the surface, that may just seem very obvious, but don't skip lightly over that phrase of him refusing to honor God. This is Scripture's way of saying Here's the most important part of what's wrong with Belshazzar. It's the root cause of why he does what he does. It's that at the core of his being, he's not oriented toward the Lord. He does not honor God. But the core of his being is oriented away from God. And because he's oriented away from God, everything that he does in life works to actually undo his life, works to ruin his life. And the reason that he doesn't honor God is because he honors something else. He values something else more than he values God. Now, what is that exactly? You get a hint when you hear him promise that whoever translates the writing on the wall will be clothed in purple, they'll be given a gold chain, and they'll be promoted to third ruler in the kingdom. What is he promising there? He's promising honor, purple clothing. He's promising wealth, a gold chain. And he's promising power. You could be the third ruler in the kingdom. Honor, wealth, and power. Three things that he expects are going to be incentives. Three things that he just assumes anyone would want. In other words, as he's offering these gifts and not anything else, he's telling you the things that are meaningful to him. They're not just uh, things that he picked out of the air. They are the obvious things that he's chosen, things that would be an incentive to him. And that tells you that these are three things that he values highly. 
more than he values the God who holds his life in his hand. He values honor, wealth, and power, things that you find in this natural world. And that's why you see him leading there at his party in verse 4, everybody assembled to praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. He praises the things that you use to get honor, wealth, and power. Things that you control. Things that you can then use to build great cities or build very uh, powerful walls, to outfit armies, to plant and harvest crops, to generate wealth. Belshazzar does not honor God because he's given himself to worshiping what he can control, the things that will bring him honor, wealth, and power. That's what's at his heart, and that's what has led him to do the things he's done with his life. Now, up to this point, it seems to have paid off, right? He has a life that looks on the outside pretty good. He's at the top of the pecking order, most powerful man living in the most powerful cultured city on earth. Not only does he have, verse 1, a thousand lords to help run this empire, he has the means to throw a party for a thousand lords, an extravagant party. It looks like he's done all right for himself. It looks like what he has worshipped has actually given him a good life. But here comes chapter 5 in order to help you understand, no, that's just a facade. It's a pretty wrapping that hides a much darker reality. That when you build your life on what you can control in order to have honor, wealth, and power, it actually sets you up for life that will ruin you. A rot that happens internally that then sabotages your ability to handle life. We're going to look at three different ways that this rot comes out in this passage. If you worship what you can control instead of the God who made you, then that worship will first, blind you to reality. Second, it will lead you into blasphemy. And third, it will leave you unprepared for judgment. It blinds you to reality. It leads you into blasphemy. And it leaves you unprepared for judgment. We'll take them one at a time. First, worshiping what you can control blinds you to reality. You lose the ability to see the world the way it is. You lose the ability to see it correctly. You can still see what's going on in the world, but you see it through a distorted lens. And that means then that you can't make good decisions or act in ways that are beneficial. Worshiping what you can control keeps you from doing what you need to do. Think about what's going on here. Verse 30 tells us that Belshazzar was killed. Not that he died, but that someone killed him. Now, the backstory that you're not told here is that the Persian Empire, Persian Kingdom, has been extending its reach into the Babylonian Empire, and that at the moment that Belshazzar is drinking wine, the Persian army is outside the city. They're outside behind that high, double-thick th uh, uh, wall. That must have been a very easy thing for Belshazzar to trust, and a wall made of things that he could control, iron, wood, and stone, bronze, things that made him think that the Persian threat was under control. But the Persians did not stay outside. While Belshazzar is partying inside, the Persians are busy diverting the Euphrates River. It ran alongside the city, and they are diverting it so that the level drops down to a height that they can manage. And so that night, the army will tunnel under the wall and enter the city. 
Belshazzar's city is about to be overrun by an empire that is just gobbling up huge amounts of territory, and he's oblivious. His response is, party on. That's what worshiping things you can control does to you. It fools you into thinking that they are more permanent and more reliable than they actually are. And so it deceives you into feeling secure when you're not. Blinds you to reality. So that it really does seem reasonable to think to yourself, okay, what's the best way to handle an enemy outside my gate? I know, I'll throw a party and get drunk in front of everyone. That just seems reasonable to him. This is why distortions of reality are so dangerous. It's because they deceive you first before they deceive anyone else. When you honor something more than the God who made you, then you don't see him as the most beautiful and glorious being that there is in all of the universe. Instead, you think something else is. When you don't see God as he is, however, that means you can't see the world as it is either. You can't. And that means then that you're not going to act in accordance with the way that the world is. You'll believe the distortion that you see and you'll respond to that distortion. Let me give you an illustration. Before I lie to you, I first have to lie to me. I have to believe that not telling you the truth is actually going to make things better between you and me. Now, obviously, there's no way that can produce a good outcome. When I lie, I'm inviting you to live in a distorted reality, in a world that doesn't exist, but one that I told you exists. Now, that's not going to be good for you. You're now living in a fantasy world. At some point, it's not going to be good for you and me. But in the moment that I lie, I really do believe that. I believe this is going to give us the best life possible, and so I act on that belief. I deceive me before I ever try to deceive you. Same is true when I'm upset by something that you did or said, but I decide that talking about you to other people is better than talking to you. Now, there's no way that that can build a healthy community. There's no way that's going to improve relationships for you, me, or the people that I'm now talking to. But in the moment that I choose not to talk to you, I believe the lie, the distortion, that this is better. And it's better because it's going to get me something that I value. It's going to get me out of an awkward conversation. I'm not going to run the risk of looking foolish. It's going to let me complain to someone else. They're going to commiserate. When I talk about you, not to you, it's because there's something that I want. Something that I value more than I value honoring God by talking with you like he would. Every time that I refuse to honor God, to orient, orient everything that I think, everything I do, everything I feel around him, I end up being blinded to reality and I end up making decisions that cannot make my life better in the long run. In his hall, Belshazzar looks strong and secure. He looks like he's on top of the world. And that's merely external. It's an external show that is hiding the reality. It's hiding how impotent he is. It's hiding that he has real enemies that he cannot handle. It's hiding his misplaced trust, trust in these walls that he thought were under his control. And in the end, everything that he trusted in is gone. After this night, 
no one honors him. When he dies, he has no more wealth. All his power is gone. What he trusted in did not deliver in this life, and it didn't deliver in death. It didn't deliver in the next life. It blinded him to reality here. He didn't get to take any of it with him. And you have to see the trap here. You have to see the empty promise that our world holds out that says, trust wealth, rely on power, work to look good to other people, make sure that you look respectable so that they honor you, make sure everybody is proud of what they see. Brothers and sisters, these things don't last. They're all going to be taken away from you at some point. If you trust them and if you work harder for them than you work for anything else, what will they do? They'll keep you from seeing the true nature of this world and they'll keep you from seeing the nature of what you actually have to do in order to live well in this world. And so Daniel rejects them. He tells Belshazzar, verse 17, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Essentially, he says to him, keep them, O king. I've got something better. I value honoring God more than I value anything that you can give me. That's the first thing that worshiping things you can control will do. It will blind you to reality. The second thing is that it will lead you into blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is not a word that you hear every day, so let's start by asking first, what does blasphemy mean? Blasphemy is when you insult God or you disrespect something that belongs to God like when you take something the Lord has set aside as sacred, something that he has set aside as special in order to accomplish his purposes, and you say, you make the decision, no, I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to use it for a different purpose. I'm going to use it for my own purpose. When you do that, you blaspheme. You set yourself above God. You challenge him and you challenge his right to govern this thing that you're using, and you decide to override him. You put yourself in his place. That's what Belshazzar has done when he decided to drink wine from the cups that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the house of God in Jerusalem. He took items that were set apart for God's use in his temple, and he decided to use them for a different purpose. He asserted his power over God with respect to those cups, and he blasphemed God. Now, that seems like an activity that's pretty culturally fixed. It's located, what, like 25, 2600 years ago. Something that isn't even possible to do today. And so you think, well, how does that connect with us in the modern world? In order to understand that, you have to ask the question, is there something that God has given us for which he has specific intentions? Something that we could take and misuse today for our own reasons? When you think about it like that, you realize, yes, there is something, something that our society does not treat like God intended. You th recognize here we're talking about the scripture. We saw last week that scripture is all about Jesus, that he is the focus of all that God has said, that everything contained in the scripture points to him in some way. It all, it's all connected to him. He is the central part that holds all of the rest of scripture together. Our world, however, takes certain aspects that it likes from the scripture and it abstracts them from Christ in order to use them for its own purposes. For instance, our society likes the idea that all human beings 
have equal worth and dignity, regardless of their gender or ethnicity, and therefore all persons, it argues, should be treated fairly and justly. We like that idea, but where does that idea come from? You can't get that idea out of a naturalistic worldview, out of a blind evolutionary process. A universe that is the result of random chance events leads to a philosophy that says, well, only the strong survive because only the strong can survive and therefore only the strong deserve to survive. Everyone does not have to be treated equally and fairly because everyone is not equal. And so if you follow that philosophy, it would lead to the conclusion, do whatever your strength will let you get away with. Now, Obviously, you can't build a society like that. It would destroy itself in a matter of days. So what does our society do? It takes ideas from within a Judeo-Christian ethic. Ideas that say all people have equal inherent worth and dignity because every person is made in the image of God. Our society takes that idea and it lops off the reason the reason that God has created us in, in, in his image, it lops off the reason because that would mean then that we owe our breath and our life to this one who made us. We lop off the reason we don't like that, but we hang on to the conclusion. Even though the conclusion that we are all equally valuable does not make sense unless you have God who makes us in his image. Does not make sense within a naturalistic worldview. And so our society does what? We want God's ethic but we don't want God who makes the ethic make sense. We want Christian virtues and Christian morality without Christ. And so we take the word of God, the words that God has spoken, and we cut him out of what he said in order to build the society that we want. That's blasphemy. And to guard us this morning against becoming too self-righteous, we have to recognize that we do that in the church too. We take passages and we twist them so that we can get what we want out of them. The fifth commandment tells us, honor your father and mother. That's a command from who to whom. It's from God to children. It says that children are directly accountable to God for how they treat their parents. Children are not first and foremost accountable to their parents for how they treat their parents. Why then? Must my child obey me? Is it because I am inherently worthy of respect? No. Is it because I work hard to feed and clothe them, put a roof over their head? No. It's because that is how God tells them to treat me. But how many parents, myself included, think about that in a moment of disrespect from their child? How many of us remind our children that they need to obey us because we are deeply concerned about the danger that they've just placed their immortal soul into by disobeying God? How many of us are more concerned for the danger that they've put themselves in by disrespecting them? How, how much more are we concerned about them than we are concerned about how they're affecting us? Or do we remind them that they need to obey us because we just want them to make our lives a little easier. We want them to do their homework, eat their dinner, brush their teeth, go to bed without giving us a huge fight tonight. What is that when we use God's word for the sake of having a peaceful house, 
rather than for the sake of showing our children their need of Christ, rather than showing them how easily they fall short of obeying him, of showing them how gracious he is to forgive them, of giving them confidence that he will enter into their world, strengthen their hearts, and give them a desire to obey. What is it when we don't want all of that, but we just want them to behave? That's blasphemy. It's using God's word for reasons that he did not intend. Just like it is when you take one scripture and you use it to fight against another. Yes, I know that sex outside of marriage is wrong, but God will forgive me. I use the forgiveness part of scripture to fight the commandment part that I don't like in that moment. Yes, God said you can't serve him in money, but he promises to bless those that he loves, which then lets me hang on to my money and not have to feel bad for not being generous. Yes, Jesus said, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And then we remind ourselves that Paul has said that we're supposed to have a good reputation with outsiders. And we remind ourselves of that so we don't have to risk our reputation for the sake of Christ. I don't have to learn how to be uncomfortable. I can just keep my mouth shut and be where I am. When you take one thing that God has said and make it fight against another so that you can do or think what you want, that's blasphemy. Now, why is this important? Because it means that you can no longer hear God. God told the prophet Isaiah that he was to tell Israel, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That's what blasphemy does. You hear what God says, but because you are honoring something other than God, you end up not understanding what you actually hear. You can't hear God when you don't honor him. When you worship what you can control, it ends up blinding you to the way that the world is and you become deaf to God, the only one who could actually help you to see the world as it really is. And because you can't see the, way, the world the way it is and you can't hear God, that leaves you, point three, unprepared for judgment. In just a few short hours, the Persians will no longer be outside the walls, they'll be inside, but God got there first. His hand, his presence is inside the room where Belshazzar has just declared his power over God and God comes to declare his judgment over Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is completely unprepared for this. The English cloaks it a little bit by saying that his limbs gave way. It's probably a little earthier, probably a little more intestinal than that. Probably at best it means that he wet himself. And then he calls loudly for the wise men to come. More literally, he cried with strength. And you're given a picture there of a man who is coming unglued. He's unable to control himself. He's crying out for help. He is publicly humiliated. He did not expect God to break into his world. Wasn't ready to deal with something that he couldn't control. Babylonian wise men do come in. Once again, they fail to do what the king asks. They can't interpret the writing. And so once again, Daniel is summoned. He reads the writing, many, many, tekel, parson. Those are units of weight that get smaller and smaller as you go down the progression. And you're getting a hint here already of how God is thinking about Belshazzar's Babylon. It's not as weighty as Nebuchadnezzar's. It's not as glorious. 
He's not done as well with what he's been given. But if the words were written in Aramaic, which is likely, then you would only write down the consonants, a little bit like Hebrew. And the vowels get added later based on the context. And so the same set of consonants can be vocalized, they can be read in different ways. Daniel reads them out as nouns, these units of weight, but he interprets them as verbs, same consonants with different vowels. And he concludes that God has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom because he has judged him. He has weighed Belshazzar in the balances and found him wanting. And therefore the kingdom of Babylon is now going to the Medes and Persians. And so Daniel proclaims to Belshazzar that you are weighed and found wanting. Your days are numbered. Your kingdom is lost. Everything that in your pride you tried to hang on to is going to be taken away from you. And here's one of the most horrific parts of this passage. Belshazzar has just heard his doom, and he still doesn't repent. He didn't repent of his pride when he saw what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't repent here. He rewards Daniel probably because he promised to do so in front of a thousand people. He honors Daniel. He doesn't honor Daniel's God. Go back and read chapters 2, 3, and 4. Each time God broke into Nebuchadnezzar's world, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged God. Each time Nebuchadnezzar honored God, Belshazzar doesn't. He's completely unable to respond well to judgment. He can't handle it when it comes, and he doesn't move toward God when it's pronounced. Now you think about this. He's just been given a heads up. He now knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his days are numbered that he does not have long to live on this earth. And he doesn't turn and seek out the God who cared enough about him to break into his world this last night with one last warning. Belshazzar does not repent. He doesn't even acknowledge God. He handled death and judgment by ignoring them until he couldn't. And even then, he can't bring himself to do anything that's going to be helpful. And that makes complete sense, given what he's given his heart to. If you worship what you can control, you don't think about death and the coming reality of it because that's outside of your control. You don't let yourself think about it until you can't help it any longer, and then it's too late. Then you have no idea how to respond well. And our world does exactly the same thing as Belshazzar. We don't like to think about death. We act like it's something that no one saw coming when the truth is that every single one of us knows that it is. We know that every person that is conceived has a 100% mortality rate. We know that death is coming for all of us. We know that it can't miss. We all know that what God told Belshazzar is true of us, that our days are numbered. We know that, and yet humanity, by and large, chooses to ignore it. We're terrified of it. You can see that in this last year. Why is that? It's because we all have the same wall that Belshazzar had. A wall that declares not only that our days are numbered, but that we have been weighed and found wanting. 
that we have not honored the Lord our God in whose hand is our breath, that we've not valued him like we valued other things, that we valued those other things more, that we have taken what he's given and we've blasphemed him with it. We all know that we are not what we should be, that we deserve to have this life and everything that we've built with it, our own kingdoms, we deserve to have them taken from us. We live in the words of Kim Monroe, knowing that God has written on each one of our walls, weighed and found wanting, numbered days, kingdom lost. We all know that. But then she goes on to say that there is one wall in the history of humanity that had something different written on it. The wall belonging to Jesus. On his wall, God wrote, weighed and found worthy. Worthy of unnumbered days and an eternal kingdom. And here's the glory of the gospel. It's that you and Jesus can share walls. That if you are connected to Jesus, united to him in his death and resurrection, then he shares your wall and you share his. That in his death, Jesus took your wall and died, died like you should have died, under the judgment of God, completely undone for what's written on your wall. And in his resurrection, you now have his wall so that you now enjoy what he earned unnumbered days in a kingdom with him that has no end. Jesus died and rose from the dead now so that you can honor God, so that you can take the place that he's given you, so that you can now see the world the way that it is and that, so that you are now freed up to respond to it by honoring him in it without worrying about what happens next. What's the worst that can happen to you? You don't have to protect anything you have because the world cannot take away anything from you that's worth having. So what if people don't honor you or respect you because of what you say about God and about what he thinks? So what if they despise you or ridicule you? Isn't being a child of God who is judged to be worthy of being in his presence honor enough? So what if people don't reward you with promotions and wealth? So what if they end up taking your stuff like happens to our brothers and sisters around the world. Aren't you, as God's child, going to inherit the world? So what if this world is stronger than you are and keeps you from achieving all that you could? Or even, like so many of our brothers and sisters, it takes away your life. Aren't you going to live forever? Won't you have unnumbered days in an eternal kingdom where you reign and rule with Christ? This world can take nothing of lasting value from you. Don't be afraid of it. Focus instead on what you have with God right now. Focus on what is coming that Jesus has won for you. Focus on that and you will be as bold as Daniel, as willing to take whatever place God has given you in his kingdom so that others might see and experience him through you so that they might then desire to honor him like you do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming and entering this world, entering our lives to give us a different story than the life of this king who died dishonoring you. 
Lord, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters, that we would enter into the glory of what you have offered us and that that reality would replace the distortions that are around us. Forgive us, Lord, for hanging on to honor, wealth, and power, for thinking that those things will give us a better life than the one that you've called us to. Lord, forgive us and give us confidence that you will rescue us to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.